Welcome back to another edition of the Celtics Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Tepetubai, joined by Mr. Alex Goldberg. Dr. Quinn has the night off. With All-Star Weekend in the rear view, we're looking ahead to the second half of the NBA season and what's in store for the Celtics. And because increasingly all roads in the Eastern Conference run through Brooklyn, we have a special guest to help us take stock of the East. Nick Faye. Nick, what, what's your role at the Brooklyn Buzz, Nick, of the Brooklyn Buzz podcast? I guess I would be the creator. In creator of the Brooklyn slash, Buzz, the yes. host of the Brooklyn Buzz podcast, uh, and Mr. Net for us today. He's also the creator and host of the Outlet podcast and the Grand Pumba of Off the Glass Basketball. Nick, how's it going? I'm doing great, guys. Really happy to be here. Like I mentioned to you before we hopped on, feel a little bit better about being on a Celtics podcast, given the state of the Nets now. But, um, you know, you guys are doing a great job and excited to talk some Eastern Conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, Cam. I'm on spring break. Life is good. Just hanging out. Uh, you know, the Celtics uh, have also done better for my mental health recently. So as my mental health is completely wedded to their success or failure, so far, feeling okay. Cool. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> well, so our plan today is uh, Nick is going to help us break down not just the game that the Celtics and Nets will play this Thursday, but what the next few weeks of Eastern Conference basketball looks like. Uh, but first, there was an all-star. I have all-star weekend, but it was really just an all-star night played. Um, we had all the usual suspects crammed into one, although they didn't do that um, – what was the name of the game where it was like Chris Bosh and like random celebrities were like shoot from half court? You remember oh. that? It was like shooting stars or something. Yeah. I loved that. Um, anyway, so they didn't have that, but they tried to put on an all-star weekend. Uh, Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't spend much time watching it, obviously. There wasn't a ton of hype around it. And I think the fact that the players weren't super interested, it made me a little bit less interested just given like, hey, LeBron doesn't want to be there. Like the rest of the guys probably don't want to be there. And like you said, Cam, all kind of pushing the one night. You no, know, I think three-point contests still hit because that's kind of the most exciting thing there. But dunk contests didn't really have those big names. And I don't know, it feels like the skills challenge is just kind of a joke at this point. And yeah. then obviously, all-star game it is what it is. Yeah, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a snoozer. I'm a guy who really only cares about the three-point contest when it comes to uh, stuff for All-Star Weekend. I think a three-point contest is pretty fun. Um, I was watching for gambling purposes. I lost some money to my friends, um, which is fine. Not good for the mental health. No, but (laughs) just part of the process, as our Philly friends would say. Um, Yeah, no, I think Nick kind of hit the nail on the head there with the All-Star game. Uh, And I think the league... In, in all things, the league takes its cue from uh, its best player, which is still LeBron James. And when LeBron decides, eh, I kind of am not going to go super hard in the All-Star game, I think a lot of the other players at the All-Star game notice that and say, all right, well, if LeBron's not going super hard, then I'm probably just going to kind of jog around out here. I mean, LeBron also <laughs> missed five shots and almost just completely biffed a dunk. So <laughs> I think he was just getting out of his own way. Um, I was lucky enough to do the tweeting for Off the Glass Basketball at OTG Basketball on Twitter.com. Uh, so I was pretty honed in. I thought Curry put on a show. I mean, it ended with an unbelievable Lillard shot. Yep. Um, it had its moments. It was for how horrible this year is and how terrible the optics were. I mean, uh, Embiid and Simmons, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, they were both late scratches because of COVID protocol. Uh, they got great ratings and... If you didn't know any better, it was pennies on the dollar. So we definitely don't need to spend too much time on it, but it 
relevant to the NBA universe. Um, shout out to Giannis. He didn't miss a shot, right? True. Shout out to Giannis. Well, yeah, Giannis was out of control. There were a few players. Jalen Brown played great. Um, yeah. Kyrie and Harden both played great. Um, and actually, one of the most interesting things or memorable things was the video of Kyrie Irving chasing around Deuce Tatum. Because as much as our counterparts in Boston radio want to suggest that everyone hated Kyrie, Jason Tatum didn't hate Kyrie Irving. That's just a clear fact. And no one hates Deuce Tatum. Um, <laughs> I think it's impossible, to be honest. I mean, that kid's tall. I wouldn't want to be on his back. How fast is he growing, though, for real? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that St. Louis water, I guess. Going to be a modern center in a couple of years. <laughs> he's almost taller than Kyrie, damn. <laughs> That's why Kyrie's growing his hair out. Uh, yeah, honestly, that um, the moments of their players with their kids was probably the biggest takeaway. Chris Paul's son was there. Giannis had his, I think he's a daughter and a son now. I don't know which little baby he was playing with, but I mean, yeah. I take it or leave it with the game, but that was good. I think I always like to see the players interact too. Like you see relationships kind of start there. Yeah. Obviously, we're talking Nets today. Kyrie Irving <laughs> and Kevin Durant, that's where it all began probably at that All-Star game. So I think that's always fun. And obviously, it was a little bit limited this year, just given it was only one day. You mentioned the protocols, Cam. It felt like it just didn't have the same level of pop off the court because it feels like we're getting a ton of interviews, a ton of press conferences, a ton of events. And then today, uh, this year, it was just that one single day. And it, yeah. a lot of guys were quiet. That's true. But I did see a couple of instances of players chopping it up with one another. Uh, I saw there was some practice footage of Jalen Brown hanging out with Kyrie and Steph. Um, you know, Tatum and Bradley Beal, those guys have been buddies forever. And I'm sure they spent plenty of time chatting together. Uh, one subplot that I thought was kind of interesting is that LeBron and Steph were getting really friendly uh, throughout the process. And I mean, it's inconceivable to think that Steph Curry would ever voluntarily leave the Golden State Warriors. But these things are very much a free agent or kind of pre-agency, as they say, recruitment class. So it's always interesting to see which guys are buddy-buddy. I think Steph had an interesting quote after the game, too. It was like, we're, we have a lot in common. We're both from Akron. We both were born in the same hospital. It was like, oh, okay. And I mean, like, you know, most freshest memory of those two is you think about the finals and they're going against each other. And it seemed like LeBron, I don't want to say didn't like him, but he was kind of sick of hearing all the Steph Curry hype. Every yeah. time he blocked a shot, it was like a little extra juice. And now seeing them there, you know, maybe they reunite in Cleveland down the line. Wow, that would be something. <laughs> and I'm going to cannibalize... Uh, something I put on Twitter a few days ago for the sake of a segue, a really good segue, mind you. Uh, in January of 2018, these players were on the following teams. James Harden was a Rocket. Kyrie Irving was a Celtic. Kevin Durant was a Warrior. Blake Griffin was a Clipper. DeAndre Jordan was a Mav. So, Nick, you're absolutely right that the All-Star game is basically designed for tampering. <laughs> Alex, you're right that the NBA crystal ball is a worthless uh, predictor of future events because anything could happen because if you if we were having this conversation in january of 2018 and said we were about to have a different conversation about all of those players i just mentioned playing for one team specifically the brooklyn nets i think we would have all been shocked but here we are so like i said master class of a segue nick uh we're gonna do a bit of a deep dive on the eastern conference and a deep dive on the celtics and nets in particular. Um, but actually, I'm going to pause and carve out time to talk about the Hall of Fame, because this is a Celtics podcast, not an next podcast. <laughs> um, so illustrious former Net Paul Pierce uh, has been nominated to the Hall of Fame. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is the second time or this is his first nod? First? 
Okay. I think first, so, yeah. Wrong about that. But it is the second time that Mr. Bill Russell will be inducted to the Hall of Fame because he is going to, I assume we're on the same page here, he's going to go in and this time as a coach. Um, so just for folks who aren't familiar with Bill Russell's coaching career, he was the first black coach in the league in 1966. He was a player coach. Uh, he won two titles with the Celtics as a player coach, 68 and 69. Then he coached the Sonics in the mid-70s and the Kings in the late 80s, where he had medium success. But it's Bill Russell. He's definitely going in. Yeah. Um, nice little history there. lesson right there. I did not know that he coached his other teams. I know about the Celtics stuff, but there we go. I don't think anyone is successful <laughs> coaching the Kings, so it's, it's fine that we didn't know that. Um, any thoughts on Paul Pierce or Bill Russell, the coach? I mean, happy to see Bill Russell get in there. Uh, my thoughts on Paul Pierce probably aren't as positive. <laughs> uh, that stint in Brooklyn didn't go too well, and obviously he didn't have the nicest things to say afterwards, so we'll just leave it at that. Wow. Uh, Nick, I got to say, I'm pretty surprised considering that Paul Pierce graced your previously terrible franchise with his presence and carried you to your only playoff win in Brooklyn to date against the Toronto Raptors. Only series win, but I mean, he wasn't really that great in the series. He just had that big block on Kyle yeah, Lowry. So. Game-saving shot blocked in <laughs> Game 7. I don't want to hear it. That's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he wasn't as terrible as it seems, but like he had his good moments. He had his bad moments. I think, you know, both guys were essentially washed at that point. They just weren't the same players. KG to a higher extent, obviously. Part of me hates the trade, but at the same time, I love it because the Nets would have never got Sean Marks and they would have never got those uh, five players that Cam mentioned at the top. Well, speaking of guys who are completely washed, the Nets just signed Blake Griffin. <laughs> Cam, love, you were trying to trade him for Kemba Walker so a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> I love Blake Griffin. Uh, but as of Sunday, right around the all, when the All-Star game is tipping off, we got word that Blake Griffin, who had been bought out by Detroit pretty handsomely, uh, would be signing with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, so before we move on to any other possible future acquisitions, Nick, tell us about the uh, Blake Griffin signing. And his status as a washed player is completely up in the air. I, I firmly grant you that. Okay. Um, you know, obviously, we heard the rumblings, what was it, like two weeks ago? Like, mm -hmm. oh, Blake Griffin's going to be bought out. We're not going to do anything until we have a, a solution to this issue. Next thing you know, he's bought out this past week. And like you mentioned, Cam, I think he actually gave $13 million back on his buyout, yeah. which is a substantial amount of money. Obviously, the buyout was huge. But um, there were typically a, a couple teams interested. I think it was like the Lakers, the Nets, maybe like the Warriors and stuff like that. But it seemed like right from the bat, he wanted to go to Brooklyn. Obviously, there's a tie to DeAndre Jordan playing in Lob City. And I think he has a relationship with James Harden, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie from Team USA. But it was pretty apparent like he wanted to go to a contender. He wanted an opportunity to get a ring. Like you kind of mentioned, he's looked Washington Detroit. We're not going to beat around the bush. The last two years, he hasn't been a very good basketball player. He's dealt with a ton of injuries. But I guess the one positive thing from the Brooklyn side would be maybe there's going to be a little bit more motivation. And he's also going to be playing with some of the best players he's played with since he's been in L.A. So I think, you know, it's, he's not going to be the same all-star level guy we saw the Clippers. He's not going to probably be as bad as what we saw in Detroit this year. He'll be probably somewhere closer to in between. You know, I think he'll have a small role with the Nets, probably somewhere 10 to 15 minutes, give you some offensive versatility, three point shots, 33% on the season, but I believe it's 44% on wide open looks. And from my understanding, the Nets There's are a lot generating, of Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're generating open looks at probably the highest rate in the NBA right now. And I think also just having a good passer at the big position can help. And the thing is too, is like, they don't need Blake Griffin to be anything. Like if Blake 
doesn't do anything. It's a low risk signing. And next thing you know, he sits on the bench the rest of the postseason. But there is a chance he could, you know, take a, you know, a historically good offense, possibly to another level, specifically the second unit. Yeah, I've, I'm inclined to agree. Pretty hardcore. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think the last point is kind of the key one for me that Nick just made, which is that at the end of the day, this is basically a no-risk signing for Brooklyn. He's going to come very cheap uh, if he is playing great. Uh, and, you know, that's another valuable piece to an already stacked rotation. Uh, if he flames out and either gets injured or is not the same guy, you can pretty easily bury him without significant consequence to Brooklyn as it already exists, which is still a really good basketball team as it turns out. So um, I think seems like a very low risk signing. Um, If it works, then that's just another wrinkle that Brooklyn can throw out in uh, a tight playoff series. If it doesn't, the the Blake Griffin signing is not going to make or break the Brooklyn Nets championship aspirations. Yeah, it it feels miserable to reduce it to this but Blake is six extra fouls you get in a game um he's a smart guy he's great for the locker room and I mean he's a very 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 good passer um so there there, there's some actually I I wish we had carved out more time to talk about what you think of Steve Nash and kind of the offense that he's running but I think with time even for 10 minutes a game kind of using Blake as a focal point for a second or third unit would be really interesting um i actually i saw uh steve nash and blake were meeting in some fancy schmancy restaurant in brooklyn today without their masks on uh Mm -hmm. interesting tidbit but it seems like they're already working on developing that relationship further and you know i mean those guys played against each other And that's been, you know, a lot of the players have talked about what Steve Nash has done. I'm not going to go into a deep dive here, but they've talked about how Steve has a great relationship with everybody on the roster, one through 17. You know, the NBA guys, the two-way guys, like he makes he makes sure he knows what's going on with everybody. And I think, honestly, that's why they've gotten some better basketball out of DeAndre Jordan. Like yeah. he's just been a guy that hasn't necessarily played super well, but he's kind of, you know, had to talk with Steve Nash after Detroit Pistons game, and then he kind of took his game not to another level but at least to a more acceptable level given uh what brooklyn's roster looks like and what brooklyn's coaching tree with d'antoni stoudemire and uh jacques vaughn a guy who i thought honestly should have been the nets head coach going into this year um given how loaded they are at all of that uh my kind of ongoing thesis of steve nash uh coaching hiring is that Steve Nash is primarily a coach who is there for the vibes. Uh, He doesn't really even need to be like a brilliant offensive coach like, you know, Steve Kerr or, you know, some like hard driving, like motivator. Or Mike uh, (laughs) D'Antoni. Yeah, no, you know, he doesn't doesn't need to really do all of the traditional coach things that would merit coach success or failure. Not that he's bad at those, but it's not like – it's not as much of a necessity for Nash as it would be for a lot of head coaches. His main job in Brooklyn is to make sure that everybody is as happy as possible and to kind of be like almost like a team therapist as much as a coach. A hundred percent. I think that's really what he's doing. Like you said, the coaching staff is so stacked. He's learning on the fly. And one of his greatest skills as a player was just the relationships he had with his teammates. Now he's just kind of taking that to the next level. It also helps is like, 
he has a lot of high basketball IQ guys on the team where they don't necessarily have to do a ton of coaching. You know what I mean? It's not like they're running sets every single time. It's just like, hey, we're doing different stuff on the fly. And I think that's where Blake Griffin could kind of fit in too, is just another high basketball IQ dude. Yeah, James Harden and Kyrie Irving have never gotten in trouble in the playoffs <laughs> just winging it. Uh, I mean, Kyrie has probably hit one of the biggest shots of the last 10 years, but we could just leave it at that. He got lucky. Just one shot. <laughs> <laughs> Averaging 40 over the last three of the finals. Come on, Cam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so speaking of keeping the locker room calm and steady, uh, it's possible that there's going to be more change to the Nets locker room. Nick, what are you hearing or thinking about the possibility of adding Andre Drummond? And is there any buzz around Dinwiddie, Spencer Dinwiddie? Yeah, I mean, the Andre Drummond talk is kind of picked up a couple of weeks ago, similar to the Blake Griffin stuff, where it was like, all right, we're going to buy him out or trade him until we have a solution. And it's looking like it's a possibility the Nets could add Andre Drummond. I mean, there was a report, I think, recently from Mark Stein that if he is bought out, he's looking at the Nets or the Lakers. So it's kind of like a, a real positive if they get him and it's a real negative if they don't because not only is it like boosting their team, but it's also taking someone away from LA and then vice versa. So I think the Drummond thing is a real possibility and he has connections to numerous nets, including Kyrie Irving and you know Kevin Durant and they've spoke highly of each other in the past. And I think just the continued hype for Brooklyn just makes it more and more likely that buyout players want to go there. See, so this is interesting to me because Andre Drummond is a guy that I have made no bones about the fact that I don't particularly love his game uh, and what he brings to the table. Don't tell Corey that. I I have told Corey that. Um, But so my thing about Andre Drummond is Brooklyn has been rolling with these small ball lineups with Bruce Brown, who is playing like an absolute lunatic right now, just crashing the boards every chance that we get. And with uh, your guy, Nick Claxton, who has been a revelation as this kind of bench big man who can play a bunch of different roles. So you got Clax, you got Bruce Brown, you got Jeff Green, who has also played reasonably well. You got Blake Griffin now, and you've got DeAndre Jordan, noted friend of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, who you're paying a lot of money to. I guess my thing is, if you sign Andre Drummond, that, that seems like it could get really close to too many cooks on no, that Brooklyn I th- team. I think it definitely could. I think a lot of Nets fans have talked about if they do acquire Drummond, it's probably you have to have a talk with DeAndre Jordan and just be like, hey, man, you're probably not going to play. Like, you're, there's just not enough minutes for you here. And I think he maybe accepts that. Maybe he doesn't. But it's all about winning a championship. So I think you're right, Alex. Like, that's a possibility. You could get too many guys. And I kind of thought that thing too, thought that as well, especially after they got Blake Griffin, because he's going to play five. Like, he's not really going to play a ton of four. So it's going to be intriguing if they do add these guys. But maybe it just comes down to the fact is like, hey, we're trying to add as much talent to this team as possible, and we'll handle the rest later. And that's kind of what they've done from the start with, you know, adding James Harden, even adding Steve Nash to an extent. Yeah, uh, the best part about Andre Drummond is that his nickname is the Big Penguin. I think that he is a <laughs> criminally overrated defender. And outside of three feet from the basket, he's shooting 33% uh, this season. I think that it's just not something that the Nets need. Um, maybe this is jumping the gun. I think that the Nets ought to insulate themselves from injuries many, many times more than the average team. So for that reason, I would bring him into the fold. But uh, I think if a team that wasn't the Brooklyn Nets was signing Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond, it would sniff more of desperation than anything else because 
their expiration dates might long be past. Yes, Alex? My thing is, I just, I wonder, so I've heard a lot of murmurs about players like Otto Porter being bought out. And from a roster standpoint, I totally agree. You know, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, those are guys that you need to have insurance policies for multiple times over. Both of them have had a number of different injuries throughout their careers. But wouldn't it make more sense for Brooklyn to pursue a wing player rather than a center? A hundred percent. And I think that's what they'll probably look so uh, look for more so in trade. Unless Otto mm-hmm. Porter is bought out. And funny enough, that would complete a Sean Mark cycle. Okay. He offered offer sheets to Tyler Johnson and Alan Crabb. They both ended up on the Nets. Same thing for Otto Porter. He's still on that same deal. So if he is bought out, complete that cycle. But I mean, if I had the option between Drummond and Porter, I'd definitely go Porter because like you said, Alex, a better fit in terms of position of need gives you a little bit more insurance. And also, He's a great three-point shooter. If he can stay on the floor, that's just like another guy that gives you even more spacing and could just make your second unit super deadly. I yeah. should uh, jump in by saying that I do not want the Nets to sign Otto Porter. <laughs> I have specific plans for him. Continue. Yeah. Speaking of a masterclass in segues, uh, <laughs> Alex and I disagree on whether or not the Celtics should sign Otto Porter if he is indeed bought out. So uh, let's turn our attention to the Celtics before we break down the East um, well, actually, let me put a pin on that. Um, any buzz on Dinwiddie that you're hearing or feeling, Nick? Mm, there's been a, some rumblings. I think it's more so of like Dinwiddie doesn't want to sign his extension. He doesn't want to be in Brooklyn. The Nets are just going to kind of look to move on from him right now because there's really yeah. no point. And it also could benefit a team that's trading for him. Now they have the bird rights. They can extend him to that bigger deal, whatever they want to do. So there's been a couple names. PJ Tucker's been mentioned. I think Jetty Osmond's been a name that's been popped up. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to find anything that really works. I'm actually in charge of the Nets on the OTG uh, trade mock trade deadline, and it's been really difficult finding a contract that fits Dinwiddie. <laughs> yeah, I know Cam because he's trying to get me to trade with him. <laughs> Alex, uh, did you trade Spencer Dinwiddie for Kelly Oubre Jr. straight up? Oh, man. I, I'm my Golden State's GM or Brooklyn's GM? You're, you're Washington's GM. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um. Yeah, I would probably, if I have Oubre trading him for Dinwiddie, I I would definitely do that. I think Dinwiddie is just a better player, more helpful. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was my process. I'm the Nets GM, so. (laughs) The consensus is he's not coming back this season, right? That's. No, actually, there's, it's, he's been really incredible. So just to touch on Spencer Dewey's injury real quick, he had a partially torn ACL, so not fully torn, and he had no structural damage, which is extremely rare. Like, it's a rare case of an ACL, and he's already rehabbing, like, on both feet and doing, like, uh, high-energy exercises. He's not on the court yet back there, but I was talking to some people I know in the medical field, and they said the quickest possible time would probably be like five to six months. So if he were mm-hmm. able to get that done, there'd be a chance he'd be ready for the postseason. I'm sure that's his goal. I'm not sure how the Nets feel about it. They've been really yeah. conservative in terms of bringing players back too soon. So, But uh, I wouldn't completely rule it out. Well, I guess while we're on the subject, what's the latest on Durant? Durant, hamstring injury, hasn't probably recovered as quick as they'd like it to recover. I would guess, this has been my theory on the Brooklyn Buzz, is like some of that extra compensation that is uh, going on his left leg is affecting that Achilles, and that's where he's dealing with it. I mean, affecting that hamstring. He had the Achilles injury on his right ankle, so you think there's probably a little extra tension there. And then also... It is kind of connected to when he had to sit out with that COVID protocol for the second time because he was yeah. in good shape. Then he came back, and then that first game back, 
pulled the hamstring. And obviously, as you guys know, hamstring injuries typically take a long time to recover. And sometimes you don't get fully healthy. I remember Darren Fox talking about it at the end of the season, pulled his hamstring early in the year, said he never fell 100% the rest of the way. So feels like the Nets are going to be really conservative and they have no reason not to be. Oh, totally. Now it's, it's interesting with, especially in COVID, they're playing so many games, but in some ways, I think that the, the science of like stitching up bad ACLs and Achilles is outpacing the science of rehabbing the muscles around them. Yep. Um, because I think we are seeing a lot of, maybe we've always seen this and I just don't know, but a lot of this guy injured his right knee. And so his left ankle is shot because he was, he was overcompensating or what have you. DeMarcus but, Cousins, when he tore his Achilles, uh, he came yeah. back and I think he tore his uh, ACL. So, uh, well, in any event, all the best to Dick and Durant. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Um, speaking of my worst enemy, Alex. Uh, so Alex, uh, I'll just, I'll set the table for you. Alex is slightly too very in favor of Otto Porter coming to Boston. Is that correct, Alex? Well, I think he would be an interesting fit. And the thing that I like about Otto Porter is that he's a playable wing who would not cost a lot of money. Um, and I, th- so I say this for a couple of reasons. Um, the more that I'm reading from, you know, kind of various Boston media people, uh, the less likely I think Danny Ainge is to make a move right now at the trade deadline. And if he does, I think it's going to be a small move. I don't think that they're planning on using the full TPE anytime soon. I think they're planning on trying to reevaluate that in the offseason. And if that's the case, that means you can probably rule out like a trade for Harrison Barnes, trade for Jeremy Grant, Nikola Vucevic, all of these kind of big names that the Celtics have been connected with. So now you're looking at kind of starter tier slash elite bench guy level players. And for that, I think Otto Porter would actually solve a lot of problems on the Celtics roster. He is a good shooter. He's reasonably athletic. Um, he can cut. He can be a kind of floor spacing fifth guy in your starting lineup, or he can come off the bench and provide offensive production that way. So in thinking about the holes that are currently on the Celtics roster, the biggest one is basically a shooting and playmaking wing who can also mix it up on the boards every now and then. Crazy how that is the biggest need for this team. I wonder what could possibly precipitate that. (laughs) Um, But I digress. I, I, I am not saying that Otto Porter is an adequate Gordon Hayward replacement. He is not. Gordon Hayward is much better than Otto Porter. But I think Otto Porter can do some of the things that Gordon Hayward did for this roster. Uh, And I think when Marcus Smart and Romeo Langford come back, which it sounds like they're going to be shortly after this All-Star break, um, having another playable wing guy who can take those minutes from Semi Ojolet or from Jeff Teague or from Javante Green that mm-hmm. the Celtics have been so reliant on this year. Just having a kind of veteran wing presence would make a lot of sense and a cheap one would be even better. Yeah, I mean, I like the fit if it's not a trade. Like you said, Alex, if it's a buyout and they just sign him, I think that's a good move for the Celtics because he's played that complimentary role in the past in Washington, playing next to two stars and John Wall and Bradley Beal. He's okay sitting in the corner, coming off screens, kind of playing that off-ball role. And I mean, in Washington, he was a solid defender. I haven't really watched a ton of him in Chicago because he hasn't really played. He even showed a little bit of a playmaking in terms of like the pick and roll a touch because he has a nice pull-up jumper. 
But um, the real question for him is just health. Like he just hasn't really been able to stay on the floor. I think he's dealing with a back issue this year, was a hip the year before, just feels like he gets all these different types of injuries. And I think from the Celtics perspective, you're just looking probably for more I don't want to say competent bench pieces, but just more trustworthy pieces where it's like, all right, this guy can give me solid NBA minutes on both ends of the floor. He knows what he's doing. And he possibly could be a great compliment to Jalen and Jason and, you know, Kemba Walker, if he gets back in the groove. Yeah. Uh, so this is a conversation Alex and I had and Nick, that was where I went first. He played, he has played 16 games this year. He played 14 the year before and combined between Washington and Chicago, he played 56 the year before that. Um, so it's, it has been a challenge to keep him consistently on the floor. Um, the things that I do like about Otto Porter Jr., first of all, his nickname is Bubba. That's great. <laughs> That's really funny because he's so frail. <laughs> yeah. It just, I, there's a lot of Bubbas in the world. I wouldn't have thought Otto Porter Jr. Does he still wear rec specs? Don't think so. I don't think so. No. He's got to bring so long. Oh, he's getting hurt. Really um, <laughs> he also shoots, he's shooting 40% from three, which is not uh, insignificant. Um, it's an interesting calculus for the Celtics, which we can touch on a little bit here, where there's a lot of excitement about using the TPE in season, bringing in a player, presumably who can be, who's paid up to $27.5 million. Um, it's much more complicated than that, unfortunately. And using it later also becomes more complicated. Uh, for anyone curious after this podcast, you should just go see what Danger Cart is up to on Twitter, Ryan Bernadoni, because He'll break it down and much clearer than we ever could. Uh, but I think Alex is right. There's a lot of smoke for a no in-season trade fire that we all need to emotionally prepare for. Um, so the conversation, for example, Alex and I were having today is, do you trade for a player like Harrison Barnes? Bring in a wing who can shoot, who can be a fourth option, yada, 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 and take on salary for this season and beyond? Or... Do you punt on the TPE and take on a player like Otto Porter Jr., which in the buyout market, maybe he doesn't want to come to Boston at all. Um, Alex, any thoughts there based on our conversation earlier? I mean, I think if the move is there for Harrison Barnes and he doesn't cost uh, an arm and a leg, which according to Zach Lowe, it seems like the Kings are hoping that they can get a pretty good deal on Barnes. I mean, I, th- I think if the deal is there, I'm perfectly fine with acquiring Harrison Barnes to fill that role. My thinking is that uh, the, I, I just really kind of don't believe that the Celtics are making a move right now, especially with Smart and Langford coming back. I think they're going to wait and see what they have with those guys uh, and then kind of recalculate in the offseason. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, Whoever the Celtics acquire with this TPE, uh, with this traded player exception, whether it's one player or multiple players, that player is ultimately not going to be the player that puts Boston over the top in the championship hut in all likelihood. Unless it's like a Nikola Vucevic, which I'm really not betting on for a variety of reasons, uh, I, I don't see that player coming via the TPE. The player that's coming via the TPE is a player who you can get value out of now and hopefully trade for that next elite piece in the future. So I guess my thinking is if the move is there this off se- uh, this in season to get that player right now, go for it. You know, if Harrison, if you think Harrison Barnes is that guy and you can get him for reasonably cheap, sure. But 
if the ultimate goal is that the player you're getting with the TPE is going to be a player who you then trade for somebody else down the line, might behoove you to wait and see how the offseason shakes out and just ride with the guys that you have, uh, you know. And I think, there, you know, the, ultimately the Celtics are probably a step below uh, the elite teams of the Eastern Conference this year, as much as it pains me to say. And we'll see, you know, if Kemba Walker continues to put up, you know, in the mid-20s a game, and if Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown continue to do what they've been doing all year, maybe that changes. But the way that it's looking right now, the Celtics probably don't have the horses to make it out of the East this year. And if that's the case, I kind of don't see too much of a reason to rush what is ultimately going to be a very important decision for the future of the Celtics franchise. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Alex. I think if you make a move now and then you're like in the idea of like, hey, we're going to trade this guy in the future, like that's risky business because like you don't know what can happen. I don't want anyone to get hurt, but they could get hurt. They could have a bad stretch. They could shoot terribly. That happens to players when they switch teams midseason. So it's like if you don't think that player is going to push you over the top or push you to a championship and it's not somebody you love on the team long term, then don't pull the trigger. But if you can acquire somebody who's younger, can fit with this team and maybe grow into a great role with them down the line, that'd be something to consider. I think the decision would probably be a little bit easier if Kemba Walker was playing better because you'd have your three stars and you'd be like, okay, the Celtics would probably be in a better position, have a better record, and you could talk yourself into them getting out of the East. I think right now, like you said, Alex, like Harrison Barnes, like, yeah, he's a good player, but he's not going to make me scared of the Celtics in a playoff series. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, and I think you could get lucky in the offseason to the extent, and I think Cam brought this up on a previous Celtics lab, is like how teams aren't going to know what's up with the salary cap. And guys are hurting for money. They're wanting to get on the luxury tax. Guys are upset. And that could really lead to you being like, oh, like I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to trade my star. And that's something you could see in the offseason. During the regular season, you have all these teams that are competing. Almost everybody's up for a playing game spot. So it's like guys don't want to let go of their best players. So I think it's probably smart to kind of use it in the best situation instead of trying to rush and to turn into what a second round exit or something like that, or a higher playoff seed when you really don't know what's going on. Because to be honest, like one of the biggest factors for the Celtics in my eyes is a play of Kemba Walker, like until Kemba is back to playing at least at a fringe all-star level, I think it's going to really hold them back to an extent. Yeah. And I, not to double down on the rainy day, but um <laughs> Tatum has talked openly about how COVID has affected him. We've talked about that before. He's been fantastic in the fourth quarter, but if he's still having, you know, adverse health effects from his bout of COVID, that's going to be a problem for the Celtics. Um, I'll use that as another fantastic segue. Uh, Brooklyn has a similar problem, which is Brooklyn's ceiling, I think, is ultimately defined by Durant's health. If Durant is healthy, just print the T-shirts now. They're going to win the title. I mean, Durant is the second best player in the league, maybe first on a couple days a year. There's just not a chance that Brooklyn isn't right there in the contention conversation, if not leading the conversation. If Durant is not healthy, it's very, very different. So I think the Celtics and uh, the Nets both have health as a major, I don't want to say limiting factor, but thing they need to consider. Yeah. And I think more than ever, it's almost something for the entire league because like you said, you don't want to really talk about it, but positive COVID test for somebody that's going to ruin your postseason run. Like mm-hmm. if you, you're going to be out a week regardless, and that's going to make you miss three games and that might be enough to lose you the series. Or you might not have to breathe properly for six weeks. Yeah, yeah, or exactly. I know Jason Tatum said that he hasn't necessarily been feeling completely himself for a while. So it's just mm-hmm. like, 
Hey, we really don't know what the effects are on players. That being said, I, I having I know it's an exhibition game and nobody plays <laughs> def- defense anyway, but I did like how Jason was moving in the All-Star game. And I mm-hmm. got to say, these past few games, I, I think last year Jason Tatum really kind of made his place as a top 10 player in this league uh, after the All-Star break. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a rejuvenated Jason Tatum coming out of the All-Star break. Uh, One of my kind of predictions for the future of this season is I I think Tatum is going to take it up a notch starting pretty soon. Looking forward to it. Uh, So let's um, let's do this. For the sake of uh, friendship, let's say (laughs) the Celtics are contenders in the East. So I think we can agree that the bona fide contenders with that said in the East are the Sixers, Bucks, Nets, and Celtics. Anyone want to rock the boat on that? I would say this. I would say Sixers and Nets are probably tier one, like contenders. And I would, I would say the Celtics have an opportunity, like I said, if Kemba gets back healthy to be in that tier with the Bucks. I think sure. like the Bucks to me have been low key kind of disappointing. I know they're trying out some different things and Drew Holiday's dealt with that, but they just, I brought this up on the previous outlet. Like they just don't have that same dominant pop that we've seen the last two seasons. And it's just like, what's going to be the difference this year in the postseason? Drew Holiday's a really good player, but it doesn't make me feel like he's going to, you know, go on a 10 or run to close the game. Like I feel almost better about the Celtics closing out games because they have Jason Tatum. They do have Jalen Brown. So. Um, all I would say is I, for the most part, agree with what has been said. Um, but having experienced what this is like last year, we should not count out the Miami Heat. They are playing a lot better heading into the All-Star break. Jimmy Butler is healthy. I think they have some moves to make. Uh, and I think there's a real chance that you could see Miami separate themselves from the kind of morass of blah Eastern Conference teams. Well, well, we'll certainly get to that. Um, I do want to stay at the bona fide top of the heap. Um, and Nick, I'm inclined to agree, but I do think that despite the optics, the, the Bucks right now have the second highest offensive rating in the league. Um, and that's with, to your point, they're tinkering a lot. They're playing Giannis in a very different way, um, which in the past, they've, they've fallen apart in the offseason because they don't really have anything to fall back on. And I wonder if that will look different this year. The defense hasn't been as good, but they have the length and the personnel that I'm not worried yet. But it historically has been a team that if you didn't buy into the offense, it was hard to ignore their defense. And now they don't really have that. Um, I think the Sixers uh, are perhaps the scariest team in the East from a net Celtics perspective, because who the hell guards Joel Embiid? Uh, who? Who guards them in the whole league? <laughs> like, really? Well, the, fair. I do think that the Lakers and the Six, I mean, and the Bucks have Giannis and Anthony Davis, who have at least the size, if mm-hmm. not the defensive package, to put a body on him. Um, I do think that the Nets and Celtics are, if Embiid is healthy and in shape and engaged, that's going to be really problematic. Um, not just because he's playing like an MVP, but even when he's not the front runner of the MVP when he's healthy and when he's engaged, he's a seven foot three. I mean, that step back the other day uh, is punctuation at its finest on this point, which is he's basically Shaq with a James Harden step back. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, 
I think the Nets' defense is truly problematic, and it can be accounted for most nights, but there's going to be some matchups that I don't know that they'll ever be able to figure out. Yeah, I think it's problematic to an extent. I think they do play better when it's like, hey, we're playing the Clippers, we're playing the Bucks. I think if you look at their defensive rating against the good teams, it's not as bad. I think, though, in a matchup against the Sixers, part of me just says, all right, Joel, average 40. And then we're just going to outscore you and we're going to limit the other guys. And I think part of their issue still is their, their guard play. Like they still don't have that playmaking guard that you need in late game situations because how hard is it to ISO a big? Like you're just going to constantly send double teams at Joel Embiid, force the pass out and then force the rotation. But see, I, it's going to be intriguing if he can step his game up in the postseason and made that consistency because we saw against the Raptors a few years ago, he got locked down. But Alex, what do you got? Well, speaking of the Raptors, great segue there. Um, I totally agree. I think that, uh, you know, as currently constructed, I would give Brooklyn the edge in a seven-game series against Philly. Um, I think it would be hard. I think Philly has a lot of personnel matchups that could work in their favor. But speaking of Toronto, I did notice that Kyle Lowry has put his house on the market. (laughs) Kyle Lowry is a noted Philly guy, and a lot of people have been talking about how Philly has the right mix of assets to go out and acquire a player like Kyle Lowry uh, at the trade deadline. We know that Daryl Morey is super aggressive when he has a chance to build a championship roster. Those guys have had a connection since Kyle Lowry was in Houston. Kyle Lowry is, again, a Philly guy. And I think if Philly pulls the trigger and gets Kyle Lowry for what I assume would be some combination of Danny Green, Tyrese Maxey, and a, some, some sort of draft equity. Um, now, you're, now you have my attention as far as that series goes. Lowry would be, I, I couldn't think of many more players that you would want to guard Kyrie Irving in a seven-game series than Kyle Lowry. Now you have the ability to throw Simmons around and muck things up. You have another shooting threat who can create his own shot in Lowry. Uh, you can play defense-heavy lineups with Tybal, Simmons, Lowry, and Embiid all on the floor, and that's just a vice grip unit. And I think if Philly makes that trade, which I'm, at this point I am honestly expecting them to do, if they do that, now you're talking as far as Eastern Conference Finals series goes. That's, that's a true toss-up in my mind. Yeah, he checks all, almost all their boxes of need. You know what I mean? He gives them the playmaking guard, gives them more three-point shooting, and then also gives them a really good guard defender. And I think in that extent, too, as you're looking at it, like now they have multiple bodies and they can take out at least two of the three of the Nets' big three. You know what I mean? You're going to put you know, Lowry on Kyrie, and then I'm not sure what you do with Ben Simmons. Do you put him on KD? Do you put him on James Harden? Do you switch it up? It's really tough to say because you know Harden runs the show, but KD's you know, a godly basketball player, so... Yeah, yeah, I almost I could I could see I, Alex. I I'm not ready to say that it's an inevitability that Lowry ends up on the Sixers. But either way, um, it'd be really fascinating to see the Sixers pull out something like a zone or even a box and one with Simmons kind of playing this like linebacker defensive position. Um, and it will it will be fascinating to see how the Sixers match up with uh, the Nets or how any team kind of chooses to to guard the Nets. Um, really interestingly, I was surprised to see this. Both the Sixers and the Bucks are playing at a higher pace than the Nets. Um, these are not two teams that I think of getting out and running. I would think that the Nets were just like shattering the pace record, but that hasn't yet been the case. 
Um, so I, I'm very curious, playoff basketball looks so different. I mean, especially this regular season when you can only say so much. Um, Alex, you're kind of jumping ahead. My next question was going to be who beyond the four teams that we had previously identified scares you the most. So you're saying that the Heat and the Raptors both – well, you have your eye on the Raptors because Lowry. Do you have your eye on the Raptors overall? Uh, not as much. I think that um, they have some depth issues that they really need to work out. Um, you know, obviously Van Vliet and Lowry and I, I guess sort of Siakam, although Jalen Brown seems to have completely downloaded that <laughs> matchup. Um, you know, you mean the, the one spin move? <laughs> the one spin move, exactly. Those, those guys are tough and they're frisky and they're well coached, but I just think that uh, Toronto slash Tampa Bay's um, depth issues are pretty serious. And I kind of think that uh, some of those guys are in different places as players. I think losing Serge Ibaka was a real problem for them. Um, so I'm not quite as afraid of them. I think Miami because of just the pedigree, they're super well coached. They have two bona fide uh, elite players in Bam and Jimmy, uh, and they have a bunch of quality veterans and young guys who can shoot like Robinson and all of that. So I, I think Miami is probably the team I'm keeping my eye on the most in that chunk. I also have been thinking about uh, everybody's league pass darling this year, the Charlotte Hornets, uh, a team that I think has a real chance to uh, trade for Nikola Vukovic, Vucevic uh, at the deadline. And if they do that, that would elevate them in my mind in a, a little bit in the Eastern Conference playoff conversation. So keeping my eye on what Charlotte decides to do at the deadline. And if they are aggressive, they might be in that mix. Yeah. So, Nick, what about you? Presently constructed or a team ready to make a move who scares you in the East? Yeah, I think... Um, I would agree with Alex. I think Miami is a little scary. The mental toughness there, that team just does not give away wins. Like they make you earn every single thing. And then they also have just three point shooters that get super hot, you know, and Tyler hero, Duncan Robinson, that's always a little bit scary. And I agree with Alex about Toronto too. I think they're just lacking the parts right now and they don't necessarily have that closer because as we know, sometimes it's easy to limit guards in a playoff series. You guys saw it with Kyrie against the Bucks. Like if you send size and double teams at him, it's not going to work. And the same thing is going to happen to the Raptors with Van Vliet and Lowry. And that's why they needed Siakam to step up. And OG has stepped up, but he's not there yet. So I don't think they have that closing package and they don't have that depth. And Charlotte, like I think Vucevic would help push them to another level. But I think like all of the youth in that team wouldn't make me as scared. Like I think there would be times where they looked flustered in a playoff series. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the Pacers this season. Um, and I, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I'm not that interested in Miles Turner. That's your a, boy. As a winning <laughs> basketball player. Yeah, my boy, Miles Turner. Um, I'm curious what's going on with them. I think that they ought to make a move because otherwise there's a pretty uh, wide-reaching lower middle class in the Eastern Conference that I could see the Pacers being closer to than anything like a real threat in the playoffs. But, I feel, yeah, I feel bad for Corey. The Pacers have just been, again, destroyed by injuries all mm-hmm. year, and it seems like that's just their destiny as a team is to have some of the worst injury luck in the league every year. Yeah. yeah, I mean, hopefully they'll get Karis LeVert back soon, but it's going to take him a while to get back in the groove. You know, he's missed, you know, and now I think about two months of basketball. And TJ Warren, I think 
still kind of up in the air when he's going to come back. And they're two really good players. Like missing those two guys is going to hurt your season. And I think, like you said, Alex, it just feels like they just have terrible, terrible injury luck. Obviously, in Karis Levert's case, it was positive in terms of what they found and possibly life-saving, but still, it just kind of sucks just because you want to see them on the court with all this talent because, I mean, they have a lot of, like, top 100 NBA players in that team. It's just, like, they're never together and healthy and getting those minutes and building that chemistry. Well said. And I don't think we're going to talk about the Knicks. That doesn't seem (laughs) worth our time. Uh, At least we can agree on something. (laughs) So Nick, we brought you on to talk about the Eastern Conference, but we also brought you on because this Thursday at 7.30, Boston will be in Brooklyn uh, to take on the Nets. The first of two uh, matches between these teams in the second half of the season, Boston again returns to Brooklyn April 23rd. Um, Durant is out. Marcus Smart is out. Any other major names? Do we we think Blake will be ready for that, correct? The way the Nets have made it seem with social media, like be ready to see Blake on Thursday. You're assuming he'll be ready. Jeff Green has been dealing with a little bit of a nerve issue in his shoulder. Uh, He's been out the last couple games. I feel like he'll be back because it seemed just kind of day-to-day, but other than KD and Spencer Dinwiddie, everyone should be there. All right. Well, then with that said, uh, let me ask, who do you think wins? Uh, Do you think the game is particularly close? And who do you have your eye on? And for anyone at home who forgets, I will remind you that the last time the Celtics and Nets played was on Christmas and the Nets won 123 to 93, uh, including a 37 to 18 uh, fourth quarter performance by Brooklyn. So with that said, uh, Nick, Good times. <laughs> what, are you, what are you thinking for this Thursday? You know, I think this will be a closer game. Obviously, no Kevin Durant in this one. I think Boston's going to come out and trying to set the tone for the second half of the season. And they obviously know that the Nets have the hype of the Eastern Conference. So I think it'll be a closer game. I think Brooklyn, on the other hand, also wants that one seed. So I'm looking for them to come out with good energy. I think it'll be a close game. I think the Nets will pull this one away in the fourth quarter. And hopefully we get a real opportunity to see Blake Griffin play a couple minutes. That would probably mean a blowout, wouldn't it? (laughs) Alex, what are you looking for? Um, so the Celtics injury sheet is completely clean aside from Marcus Martin, Romeo Langford, who have seemingly been out for 40 years. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, it's a full go. Um, I am looking to see uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, what they have in store for us in the second half of the season. I think those guys are really happy to have gone to All-Star Weekend. Uh, I think that they came out of that um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Jalen in particular came out of that weekend uh, having talked to a lot of great players and kind of worked his way into the fraternity, so to speak, of the elite players in this league. Uh, and I fully expect him to come out roaring to start uh, this kind of sprint to the playoffs. Um, I actually, the Celtics are on a four-game win streak, so uh, knock on wood here, but I think that the Celtics can win this game. Uh, I think that Brooklyn, without Kevin Durant kind of coming off of the all-star break, I I think eventually they are going to wind up as the one or two seed in the Eastern Conference. But I wouldn't be shocked if we start to see the like, all right, it's time to bring Kevin Durant storyline, time to bring him back storyline unfolding a little bit over these next couple of weeks. I think the Celtics are really motivated to prove that they belong in that top tier. And so I have Boston eking out a close win. Cool. Uh, 
Boston is still really looking for a signature win. Uh, they've beaten the Clippers twice, but I don't know what that's worth right now, especially during the regular season. We match uh, up really well with the Clippers. I'm not even sure I would count that. <laughs> right. So the Celtics are kind of want for uh, a big time win. They play the Nets twice. They play the Bucks twice and they play the Sixers uh, in the second half of the season, which is a very crowded second half of the season, including a few tough Western conference games, like against the Lakers later in April. So I would love for Boston to come out and even if they don't win, play hard and get that confidence, get some wind in their sails. Uh, but James Harden is just like decimating people without breaking a sweat. He's really so, per usual. Uh, and James Harden has been a Celtics, a regular season Celtics killer uh, historically. So I am excited, but a little nervous for Thursday as a Celtics fan. And Marcus Mart's not there to piss him off. <laughs> True. Or keep him in check, Although, depending on your, your view. Given that Marcus Smart managed to get a technical on the bench uh, a couple of weeks back, I think he'll find a way. He'll find a way. <laughs> what do you guys think will guard James Harden? Um, I would imagine Jalen Brown is going to be seeing a lot of James Harden duty right. on Thursday. I think he's pretty clearly the best physical matchup for him. Um, I think that the plan is in all likelihood to have Kemba Walker just go 1v1 on Kyrie, except that both of them are bad at defense and try to do a scoring duel. Uh, that makes the most sense. The Celtics have been rolling with their double big lineup of Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice a lot this year, and I fully expect them to continue that trend at least to start off the post-All-Star break uh, sprint. So I imagine you're probably looking at Jason, Jalen, Kemba, Tice, and Thompson as your starting lineup with Tatum and Tice switching on Durant. Uh, well, I guess Durant's going to be out, so... Uh, with, I guess, then... Um, you might put Tatum on Joe Harris. You want somebody to chase him around. That, that is true. You do need somebody to mess up Joe Harris, the league's best open three-point shooter at this time. So uh, I think you're probably looking at Kemba on Kyrie, Jalen on Harden, Tatum on Joe Harris, and then uh, Tice and Thompson just running around trying to muck things up in the middle. It should be yeah. interesting too. Sorry to cut you off, Cam. Just because James Harden is such a switch hunter, you know what I mean? Like he's constantly just running pick and roll, pick and pop to get the matchup he wants, you know, be it Kemba Walker, be it Tice, be it Thompson. I think that's what's going to be the interesting factor of like how did some of these other quote unquote liabilities on the floor, you know, how do the how do the Nets take advantage of that? And can the Celtics kind of counter that on the other end of the floor on the rebounding? Because that's where the Nets do struggle. I know they're you know middle of the pack in terms of rebound percentage, but you can really attack them on the offensive boards. I'm very curious. I've said several times I'm expecting Peyton Pritchard to get punched in the face <laughs> at some point, sometime soon, and uh, for uh, because they need it, and because Steven seems to trust him, I could see him guarding Harden a few times uh, on Thursday. Yeah, and he's the I, type of guy that probably get under Harden's skin a little bit too. Exactly. Um, Peyton also has been seemingly having just the best all-star weekend, aside from Serge Ibaka, who seems to be really enjoying himself <laughs> on this break. I'm sure everyone's going to come back having been COVID safe and there will be no problems there. Yeah, just a hundred. I think Brian Windhorst reported 150 players were in Miami this past weekend. Yes. <sighs> really? Yeah. I heard you say it and then it like, it kind of dawned on me what the implications of that were. 
Goodness gracious, what a terrible... Well, I'll be waiting for that Shams tweet about X amount of players tested positive for COVID this time around. You know, it's definitely, I think, the one of the bigger factors. It's almost like the players at the All-Star game were in a safer because they had to follow protocols. And then the guys who were on their own, like, they can go wherever they want. And as we know, some places in the U.S. are a lot stricter with mask mandates and stuff like that. So uh, I'm interested. Interested as a polite way of putting it. <laughs> That's a, I tried my best. <laughs> Nick, Nick, you are a host and a creator of the Brooklyn Buzz podcast, the Outlet podcast, and Off the Glass Basketball. Anything you'd like to plug? Um, I'll plug, you know, Celtics Lab and all the other OTG podcasts. Oh, come on, do, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> they, you guys are doing a great job. And it's nice to see, you know, the coverage for specific teams. We're talking Pacers. Our guy Corey setting the pace. Uh, Jack Manuel. We have some Australian flavor, too, with JBT and Pacific Post-Ups. Obviously, there's an array of different podcasts. So just shout out to everybody. Shout out to the social team at OTG. You guys are doing a great work. And <laughs> that's, you know, and everything else. If you haven't yet bought a Celtics Lab t-shirt, uh, we partner with Design Tree, and they also make our off-the-glass T-shirts. So if you don't have anywhere to put your Celtics Lab T-shirts, you should still buy some other uh, <laughs> off-the-glass T-shirts. Um, Alex, anything you want to plug? Um, you're I'm you're be- on vacation, man. No way. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on vacation. I'm chilling. I'm actually going to be doing a lot of plugging later tonight on my Twitter. Uh, if you just follow me at... Uh, designer underscore smarf that's designer underscore smarf uh if you follow me there uh you'll see plenty of plugs for all sorts of eclectic and interesting things so i honestly always try to find alex on twitter and i go to type in alex and it never comes up so it's always a struggle i'm i'm all about regularly changing my name just to mix (laughs) things up i know i think it's it's a good bit <laughs> well, the music you heard at the top is from Alex's band Divine Sweater. Yeah. Uh, go ahead and check that out. Uh, go ahead and check out all of the hard work Nick does at the Brooklyn Buzz and other places. Nick, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it, guys, and keep up the good work. See you on Thursday. Go to Lord. <laughs>